But God says, I want you to wait. And so he has the people circumcised, which was, did not put Israel in a good position. Now that they're across the land on the side of the enemies, they have the river on one side and the enemies on the other side of them. But God tells them to circumcise themselves and consecrate themselves to God and wait for his timing. He waits for them to be healed and they enjoy the produce of the land. God says, you don't need the manna anymore. The land I gave you gives you what you need. And the reproaches rolled away at Gilgal, we're told, because of the circumcision and because of them consecrating themselves. So now Joshua's figuring out how to take Jericho. They're on the right side. Joshua may be looking over the city and he's met by a man who's the commander of the army, of the Lord's army. And the Lord gives Joshua the instructions on how to take the city. Joshua does not have to worry about it. The Lord would do it if they obeyed. So he tells them, walk around the city once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day. At the end of that, blow the trumpets. The people would shout and the walls would fall down. It's not exactly the battle strategy Joshua probably thought he was going to do. But it was the one the Lord told him. And the Lord's other instruction was, you can't take the spoils. The city's consecrated to God. There were certain things, the gold and the silver, that would be put in the treasury. But otherwise, the city was to be burned with fire. So the people obey, they march around the city, the walls fall down, they're excited, it's their first victory, and for the most part they obey what God had told them to do. Rahab and her family are saved because of her faith in God. However, Achan disobeys God and takes a Babylonian garment, some silver, some gold, and Israel doesn't realize this. And they look at Ai and it's like, well, we just took Jericho, Ai's a small city, we only need 3,000 men. They go to attack Ai, they are driven back, 36 men lose their lives. And Joshua goes to the Lord confused. He's like, um, what about your name? What are the people going to say when they realize well, he, led him into the will, he led him into the land to be killed? And the Lord says, it's not an issue of me, it's an issue of you guys. There's sin in the camp that you need to address, and I will not be with you until the sin's addressed. So the Lord tells Joshua how to find out the disobedience. They go through the families. They found out that Achan has done it. Achan, to his credit, confesses his sin. But that would not save him and his family physically. His family's burned with fire and the sin's removed. And the Lord turns from the fierceness of his anger. We're told in chapter 7, now that the sin's removed, uh, the Lord's with them. The Lord tells them how to take Ai, or I, and he says, create a diversion, kind of draw the people out, have some people sitting by the city, take the city and you attack them on both sides and ambush them. So they take the city of Ai. And then in chapter 8, at the end of 8, their covenant's renewed. Uh, God's focusing again on the covenant. It's kind of a time when there was sin and he's like, okay, let's go back through this process. And so they read the words of the law. They read the blessings and the cursings. The blessings, if you obey... The curse is if you disobey. Israel had a choice all along whether or not they were going to obey God and do it his way. God had promised them really great things, but it was going to be a question of, do you have the faith to obey what God wants you to do? And so the fame of Israel spreads, and the Gibeonites realize, you know what, we're going to be in the same boat as Ai and I and Jericho. So they, through some trickery, act like they've come from a distant land. They come to Israel. Israel 
looks at everything physically, asks them some questions. They seem a little bit suspicious, but ultimately they let their eyes overrule their faith, and they create they make a treaty with them without the Lord's permission. And then it's kind of interesting. They they go back to the Gibeonites and they say, Look, you've tricked us. This is not good. Why have you deceived us? And the Gibeonites are like, Look, we're in your hands. Do with us as you see fit. And it remind, kind of reminded me of the verse in the Psalms. Um, Psalm, let's see, Psalm 84 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. It seems like they know enough about God that they're like, I'll be a woodcutter. I'll be a water carrier. It's better than being destroyed. And it's just, yes, they came about in a very deceitful way, but you, you have to see their faith. They knew what God could do. And they did what they could to get on God's side. It was deceitful. And Joshua's like, you shouldn't have done that. But they saw the Lord in that. It seemed like in this account here, we have Rahab. I kind of look at Rahab as like the only person that repented out of Jericho. And I look at the Gibeonites as as the only uh, nation in Canaan that kind of did that. It was underhanded, but... That's, that's what they were seeking was a type of salvation uh, from God's, God's, main, uh, God's army. So uh, it's just an interesting, interesting aspect that they were bound and determined. They, were, they knew they were, they were doomed uh, one way or the other. Right. They knew. They had to be on the right side. They knew what they had done to I and Jericho. They knew that could happen to them. They also knew that, hey, if we act like we're from a distant land, it's a little bit more okay, right? That, that They knew enough of what God had commanded Israel that Israel should have known what God had commanded Israel. Now, not that that stuck or anything. Just, right. The initial uh, observation is they were. that's how they saw a way to be saved. Right. And they did everything they could in their power to do that. And so the word's still spreading as we get to chapter 10. Let's read the uh, first five verses. Joshua 10, verse 1 through 5. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he... um, And so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and it had become greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up with me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. So it's kind of interesting. 
this time around, it mentions, okay, they knew what the Lord had done, but it seems like their particular beef with Gibeon was because they had turned traitor, right? They had agreed to join the Israelites. What are some of the information we're told about the Gibeonites and their cities that we hadn't been told before? It was a great city. One of the royal cities. Okay, yes. I'm not sure what that means. And it was filled with mighty men. So it, it wasn't a, a bunch of um, peasants who didn't know better. These were good soldiers who could be could be great allies one to for one side or the other. Right. Although I find it cool that Israel apparently never used the Gibeonites as part of their battle. Right, and it never seems the Gibeonites trusted in themselves, we'll see in a minute. But yeah, like from what we see in the Gibeonites in chapter nine, they're really scared of Israel and they're like, We gotta do what we can to join Israel's side and this tells us, look, now Gibeon wasn't anything to just wave off. It was a good city. It was a royal city. I don't know what that means. Maybe it had more soldiers in it. Maybe it was more defended, more fortified. Its king was there. It's, there was more to this city than just I. Than just, and not only that, its soldiers were mighty. And so the kings joined together. And they decide, you know what, we're going to try to thwart. Or we're going to try to destroy these people because they have joined Joshua and Israel. So they gather together and camp against it. Five kings against Gibeon. And Gibeon does something interesting. <laughs> you're a mighty city. You're well fortified. You have an army. So you go to the source that you know can save you. Verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly, save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. And it happened as they fled before Israel, and they were on the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. Now there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. So the men of Gibeah have their secret weapon, or it's not so much secret at this point. All the people know about it, but they send a message to Joshua and say, Do not forsake your servants. Come to us quickly and save us because of our treaty. What might the tendency have been if you were Joshua and Israel? One would be, oh look, now we can get rid of the Gibeonites and we didn't kill them, we didn't break our, our treaty with them, we didn't break the word of the leaders who made this pact with them. But then we don't have to you know, look at them and go, man, they, they fooled us. Yeah. yeah. And they might have blamed that on God. You know, God, this is what God planned. You know, this. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Right, yeah. This is, this is God's way of taking care of them. Bob, you look like you're going to say something. <clears throat> nothing, nothing profound. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't the tendency have been like, oh, that, that treaty we made? Yeah, that complete upright fourth. Like, we all knew the terms of the treaty. Like, sorry, it's 20 miles away. It's too long to get there in time. That was about the distance, 20 miles and about uh, 3,000 feet in elevation change. So this was not something that would have been just easy to go do. Mm-hmm. And so they, yeah, Tommy. One of the things I thought was interesting is just to look at the wording in verse 3, Adonai-Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent, word sent in verse 3, and what he sends in verse 4 is saying, come up to me and help me, come up and help sent come up and help in verses 3 and 4 and then in verse 6 the men of Gibeah sent to Joshua and they said come up and help and so really they're making the same kind of appeal Adonai Zedek to his um, fellow kings and the men of Gibeah to Joshua they're both making the same kind of appeal come up and help them Yes, and both of the people view they need help, um, which is kind of interesting. Bob? I would defend Gibeah here because they are, they are saying, these are overcomers. I, I want these people to protect me. Now, it is a, it is a, it is a pretty presumptuous of them to think that they will be received excellently uh, after deceiving their way into that relationship that now uh, is being uh, held to, if you will. But, you know, Joshua might have said, you know, you sold me this used car. (laughs) I I didn't even get it home. You're you're asking again, you know, that kind of uh, mindset. Yeah, and it, and it's really interesting that Joshua and the people respond so quickly, and that the Lord seems to be encouraging them to do that. I think didn't Tommy didn't you say something last lesson about when one group of people is is uh, is conquered by another that it was not uncommon for this sort of type of relationship to take place. Uh, yes, it, 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 like the, uh, in the, these kind of treaties, right. and often the more powerful party was called upon to come to the aid of the weaker party, and you see that kind of idea in verse 6, but yes, I did. I did, I mean, I did mention that the other day. Yeah. Do we have any idea how much time is elapsing here? Like, how long does it take for the rumor to go about what happened to Jericho and I and Gibeon and for the coalition to be formed. I mean, it, the account is so boom, 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 boom. But part of me is like, did it really happen that fast, day by day? I mean, the only thing we know for sure is that they marched all night, so that was one day. Right. There's one day you can account for in there. Yeah, I don't know that it tells us, and it's somewhat maybe... Um, we read it and think it happened more of a bump, 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 bump. But it appears that there were there was some time. I mean, they were woodcutters and water carriers, so there was some time they were servants to Israel before this 
army came against them. And it would have taken time, some time for these kings to amass, to the, for the message to get there, for them to amass, to get ready to attack the city, to get in position, then from word to get to Gilgal from Gibeon. I mean, it was at least 20 miles from Gilgal to Gibeon. So if they're in Gibeon, it would take, the word would have had to travel 20 miles, and then Joshua was able to do it in a night, though. So, yeah, there's definitely some time there. And there's some time, we'll see, and kind of towards the end of the chapter. These, it took some time to do these things. Uh, it's given to us all in a row. Yes, Boyd. You can see some of the urgency there by, uh, in verse uh, 9. They marched all night to get there. Yeah, imagine you get a, like nowadays if we get a phone call that's like, hey, I need some help tonight. It's not a big issue for us to go 20 miles. But think about the time where you would have had to walk that distance. You get, you get a call and someone's like, I need you urgently. And you get up and you walk all night long. You get there 20 miles. You go up 3,000 feet in, eleva- in elevation. You're tired and you <laughs> immediately you go into this attack. Like, you want to talk about a long day here for the soldiers of Israel? They had a really long day. Again, it just shows their faith in God. That God is telling them, look, go do this. I'm going to be with you. I'm sure they were tired. I'm sure they were like, why are we doing it to these people? Why are we saving these people? But God seems to be for it. Um, It mentions that their camp was at Gilgal. What were some of the other references you found for Gilgal in the Old Testament? stones um, then they're called to obedience and the circumcision and let's see what's that five two and three a lot of this is in five reproach is removed and five Uh, They partake of the Passover and remember God's salvation. This is where PowerPoint would help faster than writing. Um, And then it's where they get to partake of the land. Um, The manna stops. And they enjoy the benefit of the land. 5 and verse 11 and 12. But then other places in the Old Testament, um, and it's kind of interesting, in these cases, in Joshua, you see it as being a place where God does a lot of good. They cross the river, 
they remember what God did for them to cross the Jordan. Um, they circumcise their kids. They circumcise their men because that had not been done in the wilderness. So kind of a rededication to God. The reproach is removed. Uh, they remember God's salvation as they partake of the Passover. And then they're able to eat of the land, what God had promised them all along. And then in other places, you see this as a place where um, Samuel judged Israel. In 1 Samuel 7 and verse 15, or 15 through 17, um, he's the judge of Israel. So it's still a place where there's some hope. Samuel's there being the judge. Um, I can't write fast enough and talk at the same time. Um, we see Saul's kingdom being renewed there in 1 Samuel 11, and that's around verse 14, where if you remember, oh, sorry, Saul's king was Saul's kingdom was renewed um, because Saul was anointed king, and there's kind of some people that are like, ah, we're not sure about this guy, and then Saul saves. A city, and then everyone seems to be a little bit more on board with this whole idea of a king. It's also, you see, where Saul's kingdom is rejected by God in 1 Samuel 13 and 1 Samuel 15. As Saul is waiting on Samuel for the sacrifice, Saul does the sacrifice himself, which was not lawful. And then in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel goes to Saul and tells him, you didn't utterly destroy the Amalekites, therefore God is taking the kingdom away from you. And then as you get to, be, get to the prophets, as you see in uh, Amos 4 and verse 4, 5 and verse 5, and Hosea 4 and verse 15, it becomes a place where there's just full of idolatry. This place that they came over into the land and God made the place good by blessing them, by giving them, renewing the covenant with them. And ultimately, it was the place where God began to hate Israel, this place where he was loving them and had promised so much to them as they come into the land. In Hosea 9 and verse 15, All their wickedness is, at, is in Gilgal, for I hated them there because of the evil of their deeds. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. They had come into the land. They were enjoying the land here at Gilgal. And finally it got to be the point where God's like, you're not going to drive out the inhabitants. I'm going to drive you out of the land because of your wickedness and because of your sin. You kind of see a full circle there kind of described with the city of Gilgal. God's ultimately just wanting his people to trust in him and follow him. And he's given them plenty of evidence and he's about to give them a lot more evidence of that. So Joshua and the soldiers... Yeah, sorry, I wasn't able to finish that. It can't write fast enough. It's in the notes, and Tommy has better notes, so if you want the notes, see him um, afterwards for more of those verses. Um, but so they, they march the 20 miles overnight. They're tired, and they come upon them suddenly, verse 9. The Lord tells him in verse 8, Do not worry about this battle. I have delivered them into your hands. 
And it's amazing. We see this with Jericho, with I, with this. God tells them, I'm going to deliver it into your hands before the city's ever delivered. God's saying, look, you can sign this, you can seal it. This is going to happen. And so the people flee before Israel. And Israel and Joshua, being the soldiers that they are, are killing. They're killing the people as God told them to do. They killed them with a great slaughter. But God wants to make something clear. This battle is not won by you. So as the people are fleeing, God rains down hailstones. And it just mentions, it's just kind of a little blurb there at the end. Oh, by the way, there were more killed from the hailstones than there were from the children of Israel. And I don't know if that's what caused Joshua to say this. It's kind of interesting that he even thinks of it. So they're fighting. They're accomplishing good with God's power. In verse 12, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel to camp with him at Gilgal. Joshua, if he needed these enemies destroyed, could have prayed a lot of different prayers on how God would accomplish that. I mean, God's raining hailstones down. He could have had God take care of it. Like, please just take care of the rest of this for us. It is interesting that he asked for such a, I'm going to use the word impossible, an impossible thing, right? That God's already doing these things and his people are doing, his people are fighting and he asked the sun to stand still and God listened to him and it mentions there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. What did you see in that? Like, what exactly is that talking about? Brad? I don't know that I can answer that specific question, <laughs> but I find it interesting that God does this for the Gibeonites' enemies that are now the Israelites' enemies as well. But it just, it's odd to me that one of the most amazing battles that Israel fought was to protect Gibeon that had, they were supposed to have destroyed, but because the Israelites didn't consult God, they were tricked into this deceitful treaty with them, and God reveals the strong arm of salvation 
in such a way to remove all doubt that um, Israel should be um, keeping this treaty uh, that they made hastily without his, without God's uh, consultation, right? And it's just interesting that that would that it would be that battle where the sun stood still and hailstones rained down. Um, and it's just, it's just it's just an interesting story all around um, to uh, show God's mercy and honoring people that were uh, humbling themselves before God. Yes. Because obviously this was not the first time that God had listened to a man or he did the request of a man. We see Abraham talking with God on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah where Abraham is able to talk with God and say, look, if there are ten, would you save the city? And God seems to listen to Abraham in that. (laughs) But it just seems like an odd time for God to be suddenly like, yes, this is a time. And it definitely just shows God's grace and mercy to people that are willing to humble themselves to him. The Gibeonites did not deserve this. The Gibeonites deserved, as God put it, to be destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth. And then when his people make the treaty against his will, God gives them grace and gives them victory over their enemies. One of the things that's interesting, Paul, in 9.9, the Gibeonites said, we've heard the report of him called of the God and all he did to Egypt. And when the Lord in 10.11 throws great hailstones against them, he does the same thing against the enemies of Gibeon that he had done in Egypt, or one of the same things. You know, that, that, that they have heard of this and now to some degree are seeing that. And it is difficult to determine exactly, like, was the sunlight longer? Was the twilight longer? But, but somehow it's God extending the day to give Israel an advantage. But Joshua, when he talks about it, talks about how the sun, he talks about the sun and the moon. And some writers point out the principal gods of the Canaanites were the sun and the moon. And yet the Lord uses those gods against the Canaanites in that day. And how many times did we see that God doing that to the Egyptians in Egypt? Yes. Their God being the river Nile. Yeah, and the, the same, first thing he hits yeah. is the Nile. And did you have something? Well, I was kind of thinking sort of along those lines that part of maybe part of the reason that God behaved in this way at this particular time is because they were living in a place in a time where people thought of gods as having specific powers and specific with specific groups of people and here was yet another time that God chose that he <coughs> in control of all I and mean, he's the god of all and um, you know he's even coming to the rescue of this group of people who are not really his covenant people 
and yeah, the way he's doing it, you know, kind of runs counter to the way they think the gods in that land are powerful, and you know, he's not just a Hebrew god who only has certain powers in certain situations. Right, and we see that later on um, in one of the battles with the kings. They say, well, he's the god of the valley, so we're going to fight in the hills. Yeah. No, God's showing he's the god of everything. And he's also giving everybody, not just the Hebrews, not just Israel, he's giving everybody evidence. He is the king. Do what he says. Live by faith in the fact that he is the one that rules. And live under that and do everything you can to put yourself in his power. I don't know what I'm trying to see here, uh, other than the fact that when Josh, Joshua asked for the David to stop proceeding, you know, to give him and his soldiers an opportunity to fight the enemy <clears throat> instead of God doing it. I just wonder if there's that's kind of a peculiar thing. I would just say, wipe them all out. Please, I'll, I'll just step back here out in the shadows and you take care of it. But Joshua maybe maybe be looked at uh, by God uh, with favor because he wasn't asking for the easy way out. He was just asking for time to do what God wanted him to do. Yes. Anyway. Yes. So, just talking. As a that, yeah. That's the way I would have asked that. I wouldn't have said anything about the sun. That's what's interesting to me. He talks about the sun standing still in the moon. And he does it in front of the people. So this is not, this doesn't appear that this is a private prayer that Joshua prays. He prays this very openly. Like, what are you going to do if you pray that and the Lord doesn't respond? Like, just think of the faith Joshua had to say, somehow he had enough faith in God. He's like, God can do this. We talked, was it Sunday morning? Tommy in the sermon from Matthew. He's like, do you have the faith of a mustard seed? You'd say to this mountain, go be moved. Like, this is a case where Joshua had the faith of a mustard seed to say, do something crazy and tell the sun to stand still. And God heard him and listened to him and delivered. Yeah. And, and, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird, but one of the things that's also kind of cool is there's not a mention of how tired and exhausted the soldiers were after this extra long day. So you've got a a, a 20-25 mile forced march in the mountains and then you start a battle and the battle doesn't last until sunset exactly because sunset's delayed by 12-24 hours. Even an hour would have been, you know, crazy. Um, But, so you've got this really long day and then they all go back to the camp. <laughs> and I don't know if they did that last part you know, right then, but they, they were given the strength to do the task, the strength and the time. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because God uses this story to wake Israel up in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 28, God is talking to his people. And he's warning them that the God you serve has miraculous strength. 
And if you do not repent, do not repent of your sins, this could happen to you. And in Isaiah 28 and verse 20, um, he is talking to, um, he started the chapter by talking to Ephraim and Jerusalem. He's like, whoa, you think you're overcome with wine? You think you're so good? You get down to verse 20. For the bed is too short to stretch out on and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself up in it. For the Lord will rise up as in Mount Perizim and will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. It's like, look, repent. You serve a God that is powerful, that can perform unusual acts. And if you don't repent, those unusual acts can be turned against you. Similar to the way that they were turned against the enemies of Gibeon. Any other thoughts to this point? So really the rest of the chapter is just a summary of what happens. In verse 16, But the five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end to slaying them with a very great slaughter until they had finished that those who had escaped entered four to five cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out the five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of Israel who were with him, Come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. And then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and have good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening. And so it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. And they took them down from the trees and cast them into the cave where they had been hiding. And laid large stones over the cave's mouth, which has remained until this very day. So to this point, we're just given the story of the soldiers. But apparently the kings, kings were like, okay, it's a lost cause. They find a cave to hide in. And Joshua's like, well, you're in a cave, you'll stay in the cave. So he heaps stones up against the cave so they can't escape. And then he's like, don't worry about it. They're, stay, they're staying in the cave. Let's go finish the battle. And when they return in peace, they bring the five kings out. And it's interesting what Joshua has the... Um, captains of the men of war who went with him. He has the captains of the men of war put their feet on the necks of the kings. Just this sign of dominion. The sign of overcoming. And Joshua is also telling the men this is what God can do to your enemies if you follow him. It's kind of interesting that Joshua lets the people get involved. He's like, look, this is something personal. 
this can happen to your enemy as they're physically sitting there or standing there with their foot on the neck of the king. God delivered. And God will continue to deliver. And again, we see the we see the phrase, be strong and of good courage. We'll see that phrase continuously. So then Joshua hangs them, and then they take their bodies down at the going down of the sun, as God had told them to in the law. Bob? I think about the impact that it would have for those soldiers who were doing the battle for the sun to stay in the sky and not move. You know, how, what kind of confidence would that have built in you, you know, to, to be working with all, all, the, all, the, all of your person and to know that God is, is making that opportunity uh, available to you and helping you through the trial. Uh, that would be some, some kind of something or other. <laughs> and all along, God has given his people evidence for their faith in him. He has not asked for a blind faith that is just guessing that he can. He has done it over and over again. He has saved them. He has taken them into battles where they were underdogs, where they were outmanned, when they were outgunned. And he has brought them through again and again. And he says, trust me, be strong, be courageous. This is what happens. Like he told Joshua in chapter 1, this is what will happen if the book of the law does not, um, if the book of the law does not depart from your mouth, for then your way will be prosperous and you will have good success. That's the summary. Obey God and you will have good success for these people. Yeah, Sarah. So part of this comes from notes from how famous think of this, but it's kind of interesting. The kings were sealed in a tomb. Rocks were put in front of them. A guard was put there. And they were still there when, you know, however many days or hours later. And then that cave became a tomb. And then you've also got this uh, being killed and hung on a tree, and <coughs> the body being taken, the body's being taken down, and, and kind of little echoes of um, something that happens later on in, in our Bible story, and, and just kind of a neat, neat way to do it. And the fact that they were hiding in a cave makes me think uh, the men will call on the mountains and the hills to cover them from the day of the Lord and all of that. So, lots of neat things going on. Yes. Yes. And so it goes through the cities that Joshua takes. So then he takes Makeda, he takes Libna, he takes Lachish, he takes Gezer, and he takes Eglon, which is the cities that these kings were from. So he systematically goes through the cities for these kings. And really, it's summarized in a simple point. Like, all the verses. Joshua struck him and his people, and he left none remaining. That's pretty much the summary in each city. Uh, verse 28. Uh, he struck it and its king. He utterly destroyed them. He let none remain. He passed to Libna, and he struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, and none remained. And he went from Libna to Lachish. 
And he struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, and none remained. And he went from Lachish to Eglon. He's just systematically working his way through these cities. And it's interesting, a couple times it mentions Joshua, while Joshua is the physical leader, it mentions that the reason he did this was because of the Lord who was behind it. Verse 30, the Lord delivered it and its king into his hands. Verse 32, and the Lord delivered Lachish. So Joshua was the one physically doing it, but the Lord was the one that was delivering these cities. So Joshua conquered all the land, verse 40, and the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings, and he left none remaining of, and destroyed all that breathed, just as the Lord had commanded. Yeah, Brad. Um, this is jumping ahead, but it, it kind of gives us some insight and maybe a little closure into Gibeon. In 11, verse 16, it, it summarizing, Joshua took the whole land, the hill country, the Negev, the whole region of Goshen. Then it says, and it, and it lists them all. In verse 19, it says, Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. So it, it sounds like any one of those nations could have appealed and like it's kind of, I don't know, maybe I'm reading into that a little bit, but uh, it seems like he's calling out Gibeon as having the humility and the wisdom to make a treaty um, while the Lord hardened their hearts to the rest of the nation. Right. The Lord is using all of these situations like he did with Pharaoh. Yeah. You can either humble yourself and act on your faith and knowing what God can do, or you can be broken by God. And I think it's interesting that this is one of the points, maybe one of the verses that helped show God was ultimately looking for people even outside of Israel to act on their faith, to believe in Him, to turn their hearts to Him and humbly respond. And that's ultimately what God calls us to do. Humbly respond because we see what He has done to save His people. Bob? I just thought of this verse, we were always talking about Joshua and his confidence that he had or not. And it's 1 John 5, 14, uh, 15. It says, this is the confidence that we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests which have been asked from him. In other words, you ask, it's a sure thing that God will act in a, in a godly way. Maybe not your way. Yeah. Just thought it was seemed to describe the, the faith and confidence that Joshua had. Great. So chapter eleven on Sunday, and then whatever Tommy decides to correct on chapter ten. <laughs> <laughs>